Hope you're hungry. The table is set. Join us for another cosmic feast. Well, today we're going to be touching base on UFOs, a book written by Leslie Keen, which we referred to a little bit at the end of our episode last week. And I've got some headlines to give you. Today's headlines include Belgian wave, aviation safety in the military, Chicago O'Hare, whether or not the Air Force has shot at UFOs, FBI denials in the 1950s, and why the US has a bad rep with UFOs. Stay tuned. Here's something I didn't know. It's UFOs, generals. This is, she specifies, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record. She's basically saying, listen, you bastards. This is like vetted by people who know what they're talking about. And Right. And are credible sources, which right. is interesting to read. I've only read uh, a little bit of it, but what I, because I'm going to cover the second half of the book next week. And I get the privilege of being showered by your insights. But I was really like, she got me right away. She pretty much, she basically got me on her side right away as an author because she was so aware of how difficult it is to take this and prove it to people. In a even serious, though there's professional a ton of manner. Evidence. Yeah. yeah and this is Leslie Keene so that taboo. we're talking about. It's so taboo that people just dismiss it for even mentioning it. And she talks about that, too. Um, yeah. What did you think? What was your impression leading into it? Did you enjoy it? Uh, yeah. So it, it's a lot easier to read than uh, Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia, for sure. The language is a little more uh, modern. This book was written in 2010 by an investigative journalist. So she has experience writing. She's not like a scientist who also happened to write a book. Her job is to write and to take other people's words and turn them into something that's interesting and fun to read. Uh, so in that sense, yes, this book is chock full, 28 chapters, 15 of which <laughs> I've already read and I'm going to report to you this week. And then uh, next podcast, we'll, David will be taking over the second half of the book. So yes, this was a, a much more interesting book for me to read. Leslie Keene is, she controls the way the chapters function and like very smartly delivers the chapters that explain information that future chapters will refer to events that if, if you didn't already read those chapters, you would, you would be like, what event is she referring to? Um, and that's because not all the chapters are written by her. They are actually really each, each chapter, not each chapter, but every Every other chapter or show or so is written by a general, a pilot, or a government official. What? So she's taking their essays, putting them into these chapters, and then kind of reflecting on them before and after about how it affected her opinion and history's opinion and the U.S. versus the U.K. So it's it's really nicely formed in that in that sense. I feel like we may have in our hands, and that's why it's such a tasty book to cover early on. We may have in our hands pretty much the only thing we have to throw at people when they question UFOs to us from now on. <laughs> Anytime anybody wants to question this phenomenon, we can just probably not throw it at them because that's assault. But right. Like, not, we, can yeah. just, we can just give it to them with like a Starbucks gift card and be like, <laughs> leave us the fuck alone. Like, this is all you need. Like, literally, this is 
She's our she's our researcher. She's our point man for looking at the credibility of this phenomenon. And yeah, I feel like she makes a really good point early on in the introduction where she says that it's not if you if you're going by the true definition of a UFO or a, what is it UAP uh, unidentified UAP. aerial phenomenon, then it, there's no question. What is it? It's UAP, right? Unidentified aerospace phenomenon. <laughs> oh, no, it's UAP in the beginning. Well, you'll get into it. But basically, yes. like she says, th- these things exist. There are unidentified flying objects that exist. So, yeah, let me just give you like a quick rundown of the book, which we've already been discussing. Um, Leslie Keene, again, is an investigative journalist. This is her second book out of three that she's written. All three books were very, very different. The first book was about like, political democracy which is like completely <laughs> not on the same track as this book which we will um, not but, be covering on this show which we will not be covering on this show correct <laughs> um but that's what's interesting about an investigative journalist they get on a topic and then like that's their main focus of work until they're done investigating that topic so she went from political democracy to ufos and her most recent book let me just double check on the title here is called evidence for an afterlife and she, it, uh, the book is called surviving death and it's actually she like refers to a uh one of her own personal instances with death and how she dealt with that and then she did a lot of report with uh, reports with other people too so kind of in the same realm but again nowhere near where this show is so we're going to stick to ufos well, we'll we're going to find the similarities between these kinds of situations, but uh, these phenomenon. But I do have that book, and I can't wait to cover that book down the line. Oh, we are going to cover it? We have to. Yeah. <laughs> it looks... Yes. It, it's tasty AF. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know what? She's a... I saw that she's a... She's an actual journalist for the Boston Globe, is it, Globe. or something? Yes, at least she used to be. Um, yeah. And that's actually what jump-started her career is the it's Cometa, Cometa report. Right? I've I've heard it multiple ways. So I watched like a bunch of YouTube videos to make sure I knew how to say it. Um, most people who sounded like they knew what they were saying said Cometa. Cometa but then there were yeah. a couple people who said Cometa report too, which I think is the Americanized version. <laughs> but we'll say Cometa. So the Cometa report consisted of 13 retired French uh, men. And that includes like four star generals, three star admirals, major generals, like 13 retired Frenchmen who were in the military and investigative research scientists as well. So very intelligent men. Uh, Leslie actually happened to know one of these men. And after the Cometa report came out, she was the first and only American to get a copy in English from one of her French friends. So she's the only person in America who has this Cometa report. And she writes an article to the Boston Globe. Uh, the New York Times then picked it up, and that pretty much jump-started her career and made her the famous author and investigative journalist that she is today. So that's pretty cool about Leslie Keene. Um, in terms oh, so of this UFO, this inf- UFO search actually impacted her career in a positive way. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. The sort article of. that she wrote yeah. kind of kind of brought. Um, the skepticism about UFOs back to light in the U.S., which is something that the FBI has been denying, and, and we'll cover that all too. But, um, you know, just I, I think even for you and I, in general, when you hear UFOs, you're just like, 
oh, it's that silly little like magazine that comes out on the bottom rack that's all like that fake news stuff where they're just trying to say stuff to get people hyped up and and it's never true necessarily. Or they're like, look at this crazy alien that we found in a ditch. And it's like, yeah, okay. So well it's um, interesting because they were originally called flying saucers. They had to they had to create the name UFO to explain that it's unidentified flying object so that they had a more technical term for it. Then we we had to keep skipping names in order for people to take it seriously. Um, right, because in the 50s, the, the term UFO took off and everyone um, writing those fake articles and stuff was calling everything a UFO and defining it as something that was extraterrestrial, which is almost completely the exact opposite of what UFO actually stands for, which is unidentified foreign objects. So if you think about people connecting unidentified to something that has to be extraterrestrial, then what does that mean? That means that they've identified it, right? Yes. So uh, there was this great uh, sentence in here. Almost everyone equates the term UFO with extraterrestrial spacecraft. And thus, in a perverse twist of meaning, the acronym has been transformed to mean something identified rather than unidentified. Right. We're making <laughs> so a I conclusion about it already. Right. And and she goes on to say the false but widespread assumption that a UFO is of necessity an alien spaceship is usually the reason the term generates such an exaggerated and confusing range of emotional response. I thought that was that was really great and something I wanted to quote directly. Um, there was one other quote here. Let's see. Just before we get into the new terminology that they had to come up with. Um, again, a genuine UFO. The UFO we are concerned with in this book is an object that, for example, exhibits extraordinary capabilities beyond known technology while being documented on radar and observed by multiple qualified people to such an extent that enough data is obtained and enough study is undertaken to eliminate other possibilities. It's okay. like in the definition, like you can't it, be <laughs> stupid to to identify this. Like it's 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 been vetted. We we understand that it's right. not of this. It's not of anything that we can identify. Right. It's, it's been uh, it's been qualified by people who know what they're talking about. And out of the hundred cases that even the military reports about UFOs. 70% of those can actually end up being identified. So right. we still have an, a remaining about 30% that still remains unidentified. But that has to be decided through uh, extreme observation, documentation on radar, uh, observation by multiple qualified people. All of these are factors to deciding whether or not it's going to remain unidentified. Um, which is a big deal. You know, that that's something that research scientists don't want to admit, that they are literally like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> They, everyone wants to have an answer for everything. So it's, it's hard for someone to admit, I don't know what this is. How are we going to document this? How are we going to keep this on a record in a group of, of other things that we just don't have an answer for? Well, and it, and it encompasses orbs. It, like the, it, it encompasses things that aren't necessarily solid objects. It encompasses things that could be craft. I mean, it could be, it could be flying like eggs. It could be, you know... Uh, <laughs> It could be angels. You and those it, eggs. It could be, <laughs> I mean, it could be so many different things and it could be of this earth too. It could be extra dimensional. Maybe it's living in a parallel universe. I mean, we, the fact is we just don't know what it is, but it's nothing that we have in our Air Force or right. anybody else could possibly have in their Air Force. And especially in this book, we're, we're not 
she uh, Leslie's not going to be referring to any stories about orbs or angels or anything. This is going to stick to the hard hard facts of like a tangible object that is something that. Um, and actually, I have some definition of what a UFO is is not. Um, some examples of phenomena that are mistaken for UFOs. This is a long list, so get ready to follow me. Are weather balloons, flares, sky lanterns, planes flying in formation, secret military aircraft, birds reflecting the sun, planes reflecting the sun, blimps, helicopters, planet Venus or Mars, meteors, meteorites, space junk, satellites, sun dogs, what the hell is that, ball lightning, ice crystals, reflected light off clouds, or lights on the ground reflected in a cockpit window. <laughs> and the list goes on. <laughs> so That's those are just some of the list, examples though. of UFOs that have ended up being identified. Re- reports from pilots and generals and military officers who have uh, mistakenly identified something as a UFO that have later been proved. So those I are think just some that of the list examples. is very important and we should have it somewhere accessible at all times because we need to, we need to just, when we hear these stories, we need to say to ourselves, like, let's make sure it's none of these things. Although it's completely absurd. I don't know what kind of bird reflects enough energy <laughs> to like freaking look like a spacecraft, but you know. Uh, Birds reflecting the sun and sun dogs. Like we have to make sun sure that dog? we- <laughs> Literally a sun dog, like a it's hot a dog. Sun, it's a sun puppy. Yep, interesting stuff. So, it's a good um, list. so because of all this, uh, of all this negative connotation to the term UFO, experts have employed a new terminology. This is recent. Uh, so now, throughout the book, uh, Leslie warns us that like some of the people who are writing these essays will refer to them as UFOs. Some of them will refer to what we call UAPs. Um, and again, uh, David, you were right earlier. This is this is stands for unidentified aerial phenomenon. Kind of annoying um, so, that we all have to mentally adjust to a new word, but at least with our show, saying it out loud, we, we just got to get people on board. Like that's what they're called now. This is the new new. And if you say UAP, that's because you believe in UFOs and you know how important it is to keep the connotation positive toward future reportings and sightings of this. So we yeah, refer keep to them an as open UAPs. Mind. Yeah. It's something right. that exists. It's something that happens a lot. There's documented evidence, there's videos, there's there are reports and governments acknowledge this is real, what it is. I think even the definition of UAP starts to allude to the fact that it doesn't all come from one thing. It could be a lot of different things that fall under this category right. from different places. I mean, it right. could be creatures from one galaxy, from another, extra dimensional. It could be sun puppies. You know, it could be anything. <laughs> no, not sun puppies, but, you know. Um, I have another term to define for you guys, and that is principled skepticism. So this is in reference to the fact that most sightings, as we said before, most reportings that um, the military or even public sightings uh, report can be explained somehow. So principled skepticism defines a true skeptic as one who practices the method of suspended judgment, engages in rational and dispassionate reasoning as exemplified by the scientific method, showing willingness to consider alternative explanations without prejudice based on prior beliefs, and they seek out evidence and carefully scrutinize its validity. 
So those are a lot of big words. Willingness. What did you get from that? Willingness. What was the rest of that? <laughs> willingness to what? <laughs> willingness to consider alternative explanations with prejudice based on yeah, prior Yeah, that beliefs. means that you're skeptical, but you're also, you're open to the possibility open, that yep. what you're skeptical about could be real. I mean, exactly. you're not, being, being a true skeptic does not mean that you deny everything no matter what because you you believe in being skeptical. Like being skeptical means that you're willing to, you're open-minded and in an ironic mm -hmm. way, it doesn't mean what you would think it means. Because, yeah, because on this earth, as a, as a favorable term that we all say, anything's possible. And it really is true until proven otherwise, there's always the potential possibility that something could exist. So you can't just deny it based on your own emotional reaction to it or the way right. that the media has portrayed it in past circumstances. So I wonder how many people try to claim that they saw a UFO and it is legit, but it ends up getting denied anyway. And those are stories we'll never hear about. They, they were never reported because they were immediately denied because people weren't using principled skepticism until recently. So just kind it's of- It's a hard thing. thing you know, about. Leslie's, Leslie, the way that she talks about like the challenge of her research for this book and, and in her life is she really shows you how there is just a complete flat out denial of this phenomenon. Like it, it's not even that like people are not willing to read about it. And she invites yeah. you to be skeptical, but she, she's like, you cannot form a judgment unless you've read about it. You know, right. and that's what I tell people when they ask me about this kind of stuff. I'm like, you have to read about it because let me tell you something like when I started reading about this stuff a few years ago, like supernatural phenomenon, um, UFOs, I really expected to read a few books and then have a good laugh and like think like these are like wild and crazy tales. Right. I never right. And then move on with your life. <laughs> right. I never expected to encounter researchers writers and stories that would completely shift my world like yeah I, your and, worldview and how you and it's incredibly difficult listen we need to give we need to tell all our listeners everyone out there who's skeptical who doesn't believe in this phenomenon my heart goes out to you because if you're genuinely curious and you do read about this and you do start to listen to us and other people who are talking about it on a regular basis it is going to be an incredibly difficult and emotional shift that you will go through when you realize that all of this is real. And a lot of it's very scary when you realize that, oh, like it's not that we're not the dominant life form yeah, on this yeah. planet. You know, that's the scary thing I think for a lot of government officials is that by denying it and, and ridiculing it, we're putting ourselves at a disadvantage in a military sense and in a cultural sense, because we're not prepared for the fact that like there is something else out there that's watching us, that's interacting mm -hmm. with us, and it's intelligent. We're putting Dude, ourselves David, at a disadvantage. Everything you're saying is so applicable to the way Leslie Keene feels as well. And unfortunately, this is this is an, uh, a mostly, for the most part, an American way of thinking is just to immediately deny without any proof, without reading up on anything. And you know what? We're talking about UFOs here, but this is applicable to almost everything. That's everything true. that we in inhale and take in information wise, That's people so with true. lack of information and lack of the ability to read 
But this applies to everything. And it's an especially an American way of thinking. It's like if you want to know something, you have to read a book about it. You have to read. Like, unfortunately, or if you want to claim that you know something, if you if you want to, you know, have opinions and have debates and arguments about something, wouldn't you want to be knowledgeable on the subject rather than just blatantly screaming out? No, because unfortunately <laughs> now we're we're all complacent with clicking on headlines and let me tell you, not what even happens. clicking, just reading the headlines and assuming I, what the what the article's about. When I'm looking at the news, I'll have all of five seconds of patience for mm-hmm. reading an article. I read the beginning, I skim to the end. Yep. Before you know it, I'm like looking up like what Brad Pitt looks like with his shirt off or, you know, <laughs> how many pounds the Kardashians have lost. Like, I don't even oh. have patience for real information. You know? It's awful. So it's- Our short attention span is just constantly getting even shorter with the fact that we have the ease of access of so much knowledge right on our little screen in front yeah. of us. I mean, it's and terrifying. you know what? And I would welcome people. I think the podcast is a terrific way for us to force ourselves to read and research something. Yes. And it, it can only bleed into other areas of our life to be way more educated about stuff. We we were in the same boat as most of the listeners out there feeling like, yeah, I need to read something about this because I'm definitely skeptical. David, David and Sydney were in the same boat with you at one yeah. point or another before we started our own personal journey or, you know, that's the beginning of this podcast to basically force ourselves to get out there and become more knowledgeable about it. But then it doesn't become something that feels forced either because you are genuinely interested and curious and wanting to learn more and feel more educated about it and form your own opinions. And like you said, have that emotional response to like, oh my gosh, everything I thought it was is not anymore. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the beauty of being educated? Basically just having your mind blown and rearranging your thinking with new elements. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's what's so great about having a creative endeavor that, that pushes you in that direction. So it's great to read, man. And honestly, I haven't been reading before we started the show as much as I used yeah. to. I mean, I, yeah. I kind of had like a huge lull there. Here's a little, uh, a little tasty fact for you. One out of 10 people who see something that could be referred to as a UFO or they're not sure, only one out of 10 people will report that on average. So there's something that Leslie talks about called the law of diminishing reports. And basically that's, um, it happens mostly in America, like I'm saying, because of all this negative feedback that affects people and it inhibits them from reporting sightings and or anything else that they might see that's like unusual or that we don't necessarily have an answer to. Um, this law of diminishing reports inhibits people from wanting to report because they don't want the negative feedback, the negative connotations that comes from that. And we'll get into that later. That's like the last thing I want to talk about is especially how the U.S. Um, of all the countries in the world has the worst reports for, for that law. I like it. So the question from, from everything that you've learned now about UFOs and what we now refer to as UAPs, again, unidentified aerial phenomena, the question is not, do you believe in UFOs? Because the, the definition, as we know, is an unidentified object. It's something that is tangible and really does exist. There's no denying that it's not real. The question is, do you believe in alien spaceships? And that's, that's where the term gets switched around oftentimes is, is right. when people say, oh, do you believe in UFOs? There is no believing because we already know that unidentified foreign objects 
exist and they occur and they happen and they're reported all the time. So what you're asking when you ask that is, do you believe in alien spaceships? Because that's the point that you're trying to get Which to. Which is kind of weird, right? Like the term is tr- now we're Now we're at UAP. For the love of God, like no one mess with this term. Like right, we're trying right. to- we're Keep it secret, to guys. Protect the idea that <laughs> that this is unexplained and it happens. It happens right. all the time. We're not trying to prove anything to you on the show. We're not worried about that. Like what we're worried about is going beyond that line and getting to actually think about this stuff. I mean, one of the things that I that I think was very interesting that she pointed out early on about UAPs is that they are motionless. They're hovering. They're not flying. You mm-hmm. cannot. It's, it's something in the air that produces no sound. I mean, that is way more akin to a holograph or some sort of mystical, magical shit than it is like, than it is a mechanical object. Like the right. fact that it doesn't make any sound, like it needs, if something is, if something functions with propulsion, it makes sound. And these, these they're different. They're different and they're intelligent. And we're trying to explore what they are, you know, and I and I think that's where we can really gain some insight with uh, these qualified officials because they can tell us they are people who know what things sound like. They know what what a plane sounds like, what a jet sounds like, what our technology. And the aerodynamics of how a vehicle like that would move in in space and time. Great. Well, the first big headline that I wanted to cover today was what I called Belgian Wave, which sounds very mysterious and such a cool title, right? Belgian Wave. Oh, um, a a me wave. Of Belgian waffles. <laughs> oh my gosh, maybe that's why I like it so much. <laughs> a wave refers to a stretch of time where a bunch of sightings have been reported, and they all seem to be of similar style and mystic experience. So the experience seems to be similar and it refers to a stretch of time where all those sightings are very similar. Every report that they're getting in are like, oh, this is connected to this one that we already received. So that's what a wave refers to. Um, So this is the Belgian wave. It happened over the course of two years from 1989 to 1991, where thousands of people witnessed these triangles in the sky. So the other, do you know what the other word for a wave is in terms of this phenomenon? No. It's flap. And John Keel uses the word flap. It's a weird word. It's a flappy word. But that's, <laughs> I just wanted to point out, that's another way that we discuss it. And it's a, is it, you know, is it a wave? Is it a flap? Is it a wave? Is it a flap? It's a flap. It's a flap. It's a wave. Oh my gosh. It's I'd love to see if weird, there is like a slight differentiation between the two words. It's a freaking space opera y. set of time it's a chunk of time where weird shit's going on for everybody under under the sky in that location Mm. so what happens in belgium yeah so thousands of people witness this dorito in the sky they're about 130 feet wide and they commonly have three spotlights under them so everyone who's looking up is seeing the aircraft from the underneath side Right. And they're, they're seeing three spotlights. Colonel De Brewer is the main man on these reportings. And so he's the one who actually writes this essay talking about the Belgian wave in Leslie Kane's book. He's the one who has done who has led the experiment on them and, and what they mean. He, again, dis- uh, described the cover, the crafts as hovering motionless. And then they would disappear in a blink. And you would see them speed off into the atmosphere at 
at rates of like 1,100 miles per hour, something that like our technology has not been equipped to be able to do yet. And also something that- Not even a Tesla can do that. Not not even a Tesla, not even military grade aircraft could do that. And this is also something that like a human would not be able to survive. So that's already cutting out some of the explanations for, oh, well, they first thought that it was a bunch of US military flying their aircrafts over Belgium as like a secret mission that they didn't tell anybody about. But they, Colonel De Brewer debunked that by saying it's not possible. A human couldn't be inside of an aircraft that's moving at that kind of speed. Um, so there's no credible photo footage of any of these. There, There is photos. Um, you can look them up on Google uh, under Belgium Wave. Um, but the reason that none of the photos really turned out and are not a good credible source to prove or disprove uh, what these are is due to the infrared light that hovers around the aircraft. And that's something Leslie Keen refers to a lot is electromagnetic fields um, being affected and different kind of, of waves of infrared light, just basically some kind of external radiation that's around the aircraft that we aren't used to seeing um, on our radar. Actually, there's two specific dates I want to talk about, but the first one is November 29th, 1989 in Belgium. There were over 143 reported sightings after sunset. Different different aircrafts, like in different areas. Um, there was one aircraft in particular that was seen by two policemen. This was around 5.15, so the sun's starting to go down. There were three huge lights over a body of water, and it was emitting a fourth light, a red light, as if it was scanning the water. And so the police were watching this, this triangle in the sky with three spotlights and a red scanner going over this water and it keeps going back and circling, doing like some kind of oval ellipses over the water. And they followed this aircraft for about two hours and all of a sudden it sped off. Neither of them even blinked and it just completely disappeared at 7.23 p.m. So that's a reporting that was from two policemen in, in particular. And that was just one of the 143 aircrafts that were sighted that night. Wow, that's, what, yeah. what is it What is it scanning in the water? That's so strange. This is what we don't know. These, these are one of the things that we, after all the research and trying to decide, they have not been able to find out. There are some research scientists later in stories that I'll talk about who tested uh, water and soil and, and rock sediment after they were told that there was a landing or some kind of craft hovering above it. And uh, we'll get into that later. So, you know, people have been out researching what effect it has, whether it's been scanning or landing or, right. you know, what the electromagnetic Testing fields have been affecting. any kind of ch- chemical change. Right, exactly. Radiation. So. Anything. The second uh, story that I wanted to pick out from the Belgian wave, it happened in July 26th, uh, 1990, in Searing, outside of Searing. There was a couple in a car driving down the highway, as they always are, and they see this triangle in the sky flashing lights. It's got the three main spotlights, and one of the lights is just flashing over this hill of land. So the couple pulled their car over, and just for fun, they flashed their headlights at the vehicle. Bad choice. The vehicle immediately stops flashing its lights and speeds over to the top of their car and just shines a light directly on top of their car. And they're terrified. These people, this couple in the car, they're like, oh shit, why did we do that? Well, we should thought, not have flashed our lights at this vehicle. They they just were like, they saw this flashing light and they saw something up in the air. So they they flashed their light to kind of like communicate with it, right? But the vehicle somehow interpreted their flash and so it came over to them and started shining a light over their car which had just flashed its lights at them 
and it followed them for about 10 minutes. They were going over like hilly terrain, and they said that the vehicle followed their terrain at about 100 meters above their car. So even though they'd go over a hill, the vehicle in the sky would also go up over a hill in this in the sky, which is very interesting. So it was always at the same distance away from the car. It followed the terrain. It followed them for about 10 minutes before just flying off into the distance. Nothing ever happened. There actually hasn't been a single hostile case ever reported about a UFO sighting, ever, which is probably why it's discredited so many times by the U.S., because they're like, oh, this isn't a threat to our national security. Why do we care so much, right? Wait, and it's natural so, to feel that way. So the couple, did they get any kind of description on what it looked like? Nope. They, they said the same thing, the, the triangle with the three spotlights, and one of the spotlights was flashing. That was all that they could see. So three once it, lights, one spotlight that's red. That was a fourth spotlight, actually, the one that was scanning the water. That was a red light. That was a fourth light. But these triangles all have three white spotlights. At least they didn't abduct these people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unless unless they don't know that they were abducted and maybe they were. It kind of reminded me of the Betty and Barney Hill thing where they, like, had the aircraft following them and then they just all of a sudden pulled into their driveway at home and nothing ever right. happened. But they lost, like, hours of their time. The only thing and, they know in the beginning is that they lost time. Right, exactly. So this couple never reported losing time, but it does make me yeah. wonder if if something more could have happened. They just don't have any memory of it. So yeah, that's that. That's the conclusion of uh, uh, the Belgian wave, and it was an interesting time. Two two years where just thousands of sightings were reported, all within this tiny little country of Belgium. Were there were there mass sightings, or were they kind of all individual sightings? Um, I think the one notable sighting was on that uh, November 29th date when there were over 143 aircrafts uh, sighted, all by several different people, and some sighted seeing the same aircrafts. But they oh, think that, that there were one. That was one experience. Were 143. That was one experience. Wow. Yeah, where there were several. Okay, okay mm -hmm. I got you. All right. So uh, the next headline I wanted to cover was about aviation safety in the military. This mainly is due to Richard Haynes, who uh, is a research scientist. This is really cool. He spe he specializes in human vision and human optics. So his focus on aviation safety is on human vision and optics, which I think is really cool and interesting, and I'm intrigued by that. that he has cool. a database. He has a database of over 3,400 sightings that he still to this day keeps up. It's called NARCAP, N-A-R-C-A-P. I actually looked them up. They have a website. Their mission is that they have a safe place to report sightings without any negative connotations. And it's a good way to find out more about aviation safety and what you can do to protect yourself if another occurrence was to happen like that in the future. Or what to, you know, to protect yourself even if you haven't seen a sighting. You can go to this website and get tips and tricks on um, what you can do uh, as a pilot um, in the military or commercially to stay safe. Um, so Richard Haynes refers to three different types of behavior uh, when encountering UFOs, UAPs. He says that there are typically three different reasons that there would be a safety issue. And the first one is a near miss at a high speed maneuver. And th so that that refers to like, you know, your, your plane is flying in a specific direction to a location. It's already set. Maybe you're on autopilot or something and something comes out of nowhere and just barely misses you at a high speed. So that's one typical safety, aviation safety 
issue. Uh, the second would be that it affects equipment functions. And this one we'll talk about later too, but this one happens a lot um, because of those infrared light that we talked about in the electromagnetic field encompassing these UFOs. It can affect the way that our aircraft, our earthly aircraft functions. And this could affect like if you were on autopilot and suddenly this, the plane just starts descending on its own. And it's because something in the in the magnetic force has tripped the wire on the autopilot. Oh, I see. Okay. Function. Yeah. The third one is a cockpit distraction. So this is when the pilot sees, sees something, sees a UFO, a UAP out in space, isn't sure what it is, and it can be distracting and unsafe, especially if they're a commercial pilot and they have thousands of passengers on their plane. So those are the three big biggest things about uh, aviation safety and the b- types of behavior that those are so those are so adorable they're just like here are three little reasons why this is not good <laughs> let's just set aside the fact that you know just how unbelievably scary it is to have something right. so advanced uh in our skies you know right exactly So his main conclusion at the end of the day is that these magnetic fields can pull aircraft off course, especially when on autopilot. And he he says that the um, the odds of seeing a UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena, is like hitting a bird in flight. Okay, so that's that's his like simile. He compares it to hitting a bird in flight. He says it's it's very unlikely that that would ever happen, but it's potentially very dangerous if it does. But it has happened, I think, where yeah. where pilots have collided with UFOs or or right. near misses, and they do they do for some reason mess with your car, with your plane. I mean, this is about planes specifically, but they do mess with your systems for some reason. Right. And I don't know. I don't know if that's intentional or if it's. I mean, sometimes it's probably intentional, like they can turn off your radar or something, but I think sometimes it's also just the power of these things coming in contact with our technology, right? Right. That's how that's how I'm interpreting it, that it's not yeah. like a conscious effort to trip your magnetic fields and turn off your autopilot. It just happens as a result of their high technology aircraft. Right. So I, I have a I have about four stories that involve like aviation safety. One of those being the incident at Chicago O'Hare, which if you don't already know about, I will tell that one last. All right. So um, <laughs> the first instance happened with a man named Julio Miguel Guerra. This happened on November 2nd, 1982 at about 10 minutes to 11 a.m. He sees this oval aircraft below him while he's doing his military rounds. The aircraft, really funny, he describes being half red and half aluminum. And he said it's like a perfect oval. And it just, in my head, I pictured like a Pokeball. He says that um, from what he could gauge, he was pretty far away from it, but he thought that it was like eight to 10 feet wide and it was traveling at about 300 miles per hour. So it was a little Jesus. tiny, little tiny little ball in the sky, right? Flying it started. It started flying ellipticals around his aircraft just repeatedly <laughs> at 300 miles an hour. It was just circling Listen, his aircraft. That's a sun puppy <laughs> if I've ever heard of one, okay? <laughs> they get real excited. Yeah, he wanted to play a little round of fetch. <laughs> um, and then within a matter of minutes, it sped off in the blink of an eye. He said that the speed at which it left had to be somewhere around 1,500 miles per hour, something that, again, humans could not survive this type of velocity. So we know that there's no human in this aircraft. It's also like 8 to 10 feet wide, tiny little oval pokeball, right? 
So that was it. That, but that was something that um, under the three main types of behavior that would qualify as a near miss because it's flying ellipticals around him at a very high speed. Um, and it also qualifies as the number third behavior as a cockpit distraction because he was like completely focused on this object and not necessarily paying attention to the course he was flying. You know, it reminds me of what spooked me about the definition UAP because in that definition, they discussed that we're, it could be, there's either an intelligence in these ships or it could be an artificial intelligence. So it, right. could, it could be like their version of robots or sentinels. <laughs> All right, so moving on to uh, the second aviation safety story. This is a man, th- this one's really, this one's actually kind of a sad story. This one made me sad. Oh, no. um, this man is named Frederick Valentique. It's I-C-H, I don't know. He's Australian. Um, this happened October 21st, 1978 around 9.06 p.m. He's a 20-year-old pilot, and he's flying over Melbourne, doing his rounds, and he reports back to his base that he's being chased. And this has been going on for several minutes by some UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena. He's not sure what it is, but it's heading straight for him, and then it just speeds out of his, out of his vision at the last second. He described it as being metallic, cigar-shaped, which is interesting because I think that means that he's seen it from the side view instead of like the underneath view, but he was always describing it as cigar-shaped. And it had green lights emitting out of it. Uh, So kind of interesting. Not really an aircraft that we've previously talked about. This is a very different We're getting our first cigar-shaped craft report here. Yeah, our green cigar aircraft. Um, so there's there's a whole tape, and Leslie Keene listened to the whole thing, and, and um, it's it's actually in the book. It's all listed out, like, every minute to minute from him reporting to base and the base getting back to him. And the base is just, wow. they're very, like, basic about how they're responding. They're just like, okay, you're seeing something cigar-shaped. Okay, it has green lights. Okay. And they're just, like, you know, very nonchalant about it. And all of a sudden, the tape ends, and there's 14 seconds of metallic noise at the end. Some kind of... Some metallic noise. 14 seconds worth. And after the silence ends, his aircraft went missing. Never been found. Wow. So that, in, in terms of aviation safety, could be all three... That's definitely hazardous to your safety. (laughs) Definitely. Especially if you go missing and never to be found again. And this happened 42 years ago. Here's something I want to point out. Whenever anybody says like, oh, like, how come you can't get a good cell phone video or whatever, whatever. Like these things are of godlike power. They have the ability to capture planes. They have the ability... (laughs) To capture people. They are not of our, they're not on our wavelength. They're not on our level. Like if they want to interfere with our phones or with our technology, imagine if you were like in a, in a simulation or a video game and you were looking down at your little video game characters and it's like, oh, how can we identify what we're doing? Well, they have this, they have this ability to, they see us, they feel us, they know what yeah. we're doing. They, they have, um, there's no distance that, that interferes with what they can do. Like their distance is not an object for them. Space is not an issue for them. So listen to this. Frederick goes missing, never found, 42 years later, never found in the ocean, nothing. They did reports and, 
and uh, like long search hunts for him, never found him. But there was a report, a second report from a guy in his car who also saw that aircraft with green lights emitting from it. And he saw Frederick's aircraft as well. And he saw them both disappear. Wow. And that was a reporting that came in later, like several months later. Somebody, because this was happening like above. Above Melbourne. Australia. Yeah. Somebody. Yeah, Melbourne. Yeah, it was above like the city limits. And so he saw it in his car. He saw this green light coming from this strange aircraft and he saw Frederick's aircraft and he saw both of them disappear. So if you ever see a cigar shaped object with green lights, run or pretend <laughs> yeah, you're right? <laughs> where I wonder where he went. You know, I wonder what the, yeah. I, I wonder sometimes with these individuals who disappear. You know, the the rarest ways like this, like what is the rest of their life like? So that's really sad to hear, but it's important to know. I mean, it's important to remember that this is this is not a this is not a friendly, all respectful force. This is not a force that has the best of manners sometimes. Right. I mean, I'm not judging the force itself, but it's 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 definitely something to be. To be to be feared, you know. To be wary of. To be Just, weary of. And and who knows? Um, all the all the incidences where people go missing that we don't hear about and we don't hear why it happened, but they're in the mis- missing persons case, and maybe it is somehow attributed to some kind of UAP or UFO. Interesting to think about. Yeah, I mean, if anybody knows, they're certainly not going to tell anybody. No, you know? no. Imagine right. if that was a headline. It just wouldn't look good for that newspaper, you know? I got two more stories about aviation safety. Um, The last one being about Chicago O'Hare. Let's dip in there. So this is about, uh, this story is a very interesting one that there's like no explanation for. And it's like completely different from any other reportings that we've read in the past. But it still qualifies as something that is unidentified to this day. Um, So there was a commercial pilot. Uh, He's flying... A, a plane for like an airline. That's that's what commercial means. So he has okay. pa- he right. has passengers on his plane, and um, it, it's funny. Leslie uh, wrote like a paragraph before his essay, and she's like, "The terminology used by this man might be a little different because he's just a common folk man. He's not a research analyst or a military man, you know." <laughs> so she like comments that because he just kind of he's like scared the crap out of me. Like that's kind of the way this guy talks. So um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's it was it was a good little read. Uh, but this is a man named I, I believe his last name is pronounced Bowyer. It's like B-O-W-Y-E-R, Bowyer. Um, so Ray Bowyer. This happened April 23rd, 2007 off the Normandy coast. There were two massive UFOs sighted. He reported them. And and when, since he was, he was off the coast of Normandy, obviously he works for the UK. He reported his sighting to his airline. And um, like I've said previously, the UK, when they hear about report sightings, they take them much more seriously than the U.S. Um, this went directly to Richard Haynes, who, again, about the aviation safety was like, this is a this could be a big potential hazard. Um, so he got no negative connotations for reporting. He said that it's just part of his job to report things that he sees. I love um, it. Let's let's look. I to, wish it would be more like other, that. Well, let's look to other here. countries to see how they relate yeah. to this. I mean, that right. first. That first Cometa report was was uh, sponsored by the government, you know. Right. 
they're, French they're not, government. They're welcoming, you know, research and and allowing their own officials to to dive into the subject. Right. Um, exactly. So so okay. So Ray reports this to eventually to to his airline, who okay. submits it to the proper. You know, uh, Richard Haynes in part channels of upon channels. Gotcha. Right. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So he and some of his passengers see these large yellow discs floating above the water. They're just flying over the water right now. They're flying over the coast. So there's no land underneath them. And they see two large yellow discs. I'm telling you, like, imagine the size of a small town. That's how big these discs were. Wow. Huge. Massive. So guests on the plane saw it, too. They were, they were just solid discs, and they and so they were below the aircraft. So um, they're flying over the water, and they see these giant land masses that are hovering in the air, but they're below the aircraft. So they can see them. They're just hovering there, not doing anything. The size of a town on top of the water. Wow. Right? So really interesting. Two of them. Uh, nothing ever came of that, but some of his guests on his plane saw it too, and they, and they reported it as well. So it was verified by multiple people who witnessed it. And then this was the only thing that he mentioned that was like, who knows if there's any connection, but four days later, there was an earthquake on the coast of Normandy. So the event preceded some sort of a natural disaster. Right. It's kind of like the Mothman, you know? The Mothman preceded the the bridge collapsing and stuff like that. That's weird. I wonder, you know, I wonder how many, like, like how many aliens are in this thing? Like imagine if it's <laughs> imagine if it's not a town. It's just like two dudes that two dudes that can't stand each other and they work on opposite ends of this massive oh my object. Gosh. You know, it's like or, a castle. Like you stay in your wing and I'll stay in my. Yeah, never come or, to the left wing. <laughs> or imagine if it is a city full of them. Or imagine if it's just some creature in there that that just works in the center. Right. I have um, I have a fun quote from Ray that I wanted to read, and yeah. I'll, I'll try to re- I'll try to read this in in his voice so you can get an idea of oh, what type please. of man he was. So he basically he he's uh, to preface this he's saying like uh, he reported it and they took it to the the people who needed to hear about it, but it was never like written about. It was never posted on the news. It never became national news. And so here's his question. He goes, "What if the people of the world were informed of?" This scenario, it could result in recrimination against government, religion, and authority, possibly large-scale civil unrest culminating in a new world order which might or might not be beneficial to the planet, or a myriad of other complicated and unpredictable scenarios. The authorities may do well to consider keeping the lid on Pandora's box for this one. But so so he's saying that, I thought he was saying that people should be informed so that they don't hold their institutions accountable for being ill-informed. He's saying people shouldn't know anything about this. He's saying, he's just questioning what what if everyone was informed about this? What if it was on the national news? It could create an uproar for the better or not. He said it might or might not be beneficial for the planet because who knows how people are going to consume the information that they're given, especially about something that they're A, not familiar with, because that's going to immediately instill fear. Well, that's why it's been handled the way it has. And I think we're, we're done with that version of dealing with things. It doesn't work anymore. People know better. And, in, you know, treating us like we're incapable of digesting 
the future is absurd. You know, I think think that's, that's the approach that has been taken and it's insulting and it's definitely, it's not helping us. I mean, if anything, I feel like it would be good for people to know. I mean, imagine how scared people were when they saw those objects. Right. If they had some baseline of knowledge about it, they could be like, okay, this is a UAP. It happens. I don't know. I mean, but it is hard to know. I mean, I, I know it's it's hard to know what effect it will have on society as a whole to really right. embrace this phenomenon, you know? Like, David, for you and me, we would be able to take that knowledge and, and inhale it and be like, wow, okay, so it's confirmed these things do exist. And be able to react in a positive manner to that. But we're not also the general population. So who knows how some people would react. But as I explained earlier, like when I went through the paradigm shift of of accepting these things as reality, it was very painful and hard. But once you get through that, then, you know, I'd love to think that it just makes our world, our reality, our universe as colorful, interesting, and curious as it really is. A world full of possibility. Where are we cruising cruising to next? Yeah, so the next story is about the Chicago O'Hare incident, um, which I keep talking about like everyone should know about. But (laughs) wasn't this something that was, was... It was recently confirmed, though, that it is a UFO, and that was confirmed with the NASA and the Navy stuff that happened earlier this year. I feel like I watched some kind of, like, thing on the History Channel where Tom DeLonge, the guy from Blink-182, he's gotten, like, really into this, and he was talking about it, and he refers to this incident. O'Hare is an international airport located in Chicago, which is about directly in the center of the United States. Um, Almost all the flights will go out of this airport at some point or another to connect to a bigger airport or internationally. So this is heavily populated airport, right? Tons of foot traffic coming through at all times. You've been there. Many, many different airline choices. Yes, I, I'm from the Midwest, so I a lot of my flights, connecting flights, would always be like, I fly from my small town in Iowa to O'Hare to get anywhere else. <laughs> okay, so Chicago O'Hare, we're in the center of the U.S., tiny little international airport. This happened on November 7th, 2006, so about 14 years ago. Um, this means that, like, you know, everyone has a cell phone in their hand, that kind of thing. That's, that's what's happening now. This happened uh, between 4 and 4.30 p.m., So middle of the afternoon, there was a metallic disc that just hovered in the air above United Airlines um, runway. And everyone saw it. Everyone was pointing to it. They're like, look at that thing. Civilians, pilots, server industry workers, tons of people witnessed this. And all of a sudden, it disappears into the clouds and leaves a hole. It's what we call a hole punch cloud inside the cloud, like a perfect little circular cookie hole, right? From the research that's been done, this aircraft was somewhere between 22 and 88 feet in diameter. Really specific, but also like a 60-foot range. (laughs) Um, Thousands of civilians reported it, but the officials immediately denied it. They were saying that it was just what we call a hole-punch cloud. Now, if you don't know what a hole-punch cloud is, this occurs when ice crystals fall down through the clouds 
and they puncture holes in the clouds and they leave perfect little circles in the clouds just because of these ice crystals that fall down. And they evaporate before they hit Earth, so it's not like a danger. So we can add this to our beautiful list of (laughs) what a UFO probably is. Right, and that actually is in the list of of explained phenomena. A hole punch Um, cloud. Hole punch cloud, yep. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the the issue with the officials claiming that this is a hole punch cloud is that this only happens when ice crystals fall down through the clouds. Everyone who witnessed this hole in the cloud witnessed the vehicle going up through the cloud, which is something that wouldn't naturally happen. People were like so angry that this is how the U.S. handled this. And they're like, oh, it was nothing. It was just a hole punch cloud. It was an ice crystal falling through the cloud. Everyone's like, no. I saw what I saw. It was a metallic disc hovering in the air and then disappearing up through the clouds. There's no way that that's how you could explain it. And and here's the thing. Like, officials denied it, and the airline, United Airlines, never investigated it. And one of the great quotes in this book uh, said that air traffic, when, when they're investigating something, they'll investigate anything. They'll investigate why a coffee pot fell into the galley during a landing on an airplane. Well, why wouldn't they investigate something like this? <laughs> right. They'll they'll make the biggest issue, security issue out of nonsense, probably. You exactly. Know, because we're all on edge with these things. But and this is post 9-11, too. But they won't research. But it shows you how taboo this right. subject is. And it shows right. you basically how we're still operating. Where if that happened today, do you think that it would be handled the same way? Do you think they would basically deny it? and not look into it and not give people the respect they deserve? I mean, this was just 14 years ago, so who knows? Depending on the time and place, I'm sure they would, especially now in our in our climate of today because we have so much more important, quote-unquote, things to be worrying about that, like, why waste precious media coverage on something like this when they can just say, oh, it was a hole punch cloud, moving on. Yeah, I mean, that, that reminds me of what happened with the Phoenix Lights, where, where they ended up ridiculing the whole thing and how upsetting that was to everybody. Um, but, you know, it makes me wonder, like, if there was another way to handle this, like, to just acknowledge that it's a UAP, you know, just acknowledge right. that, you know, we're sorry, we don't know what it was, you know, we're, we're looking into it. I mean, but people um, love answers. They don't like to leave things unanswered. Well, what's wrong with acknowledging? Yeah. What's wrong with acknowledging that you don't know, but exactly, you know, it's hard for the U S to do. They want to have an answer for everything there. It's like embarrassing to not have an answer for it. So this is just their protocol, you know? So I think as as citizens, we have to begin to look to other forms of leadership to relate about this. Other organizations, uh, we need to relate to ourselves and, and stand right. behind researchers and stand behind people who are willing to acknowledge what's happening, you know? But it's right. sad. I hope our government can find a way to do this. So what ended up happening? It just, that was it, right? That was it. Just it's a down in the books. It's a whole punch cloud. Yep. Yeah, that's that's yep. pretty cool, though. That's a great story. <laughs> <Indeed>. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, these denials, 
in the U.S. have gone back. They, they date back all the way back to the 1950s with Project Blue Book, which we're going to finish our episode with that story today. But I wanted to really quickly answer a question that I had, which was, well, have any, has anybody ever tried to fire at a UFO? Has anyone tried to, like, shoot a missile? There's actually two cases where this has happened. So we'll talk about those two stories now. And just to make you all feel good, neither craft retaliated when it was shot at just so you know. So again, no national security threat as of yet that we know of. So two cases here. (laughs) One happened in um, Iran and the other one in Peru. So I'll talk about Iran first. This happened September 18th, 1976 at 11 p.m. So it's dark out. There was a military aircraft flying over and it noticed a diamond-shaped object with something that he referred to as a bright moon shooting out of it. So it was this little tiny moon that came out of this diamond object, like explored the area and then would go back into the craft. So it's like a little spy device, right? That's that's kind of what I'm picturing. It's like a, what do they call that? Like it's a scouting, scouting yeah, exactly, drone yeah. or something. It, drone, yeah. exactly. Something like a drone, but it's super bright. He described it as a bright moon, which is like such a weird description for this little tiny ball of light that like goes and is spying on things. So. Yeah, that's a so, mystical kind of visual right, right there. Right, he's just flying rounds and he reports this back to base and they say, go ahead and fire a missile at it. Like we can't have anything that might be intrusive to our military base. Like you have to get rid of it. So he, you know, clicks his little buttons here and he fires up his missiles and the missile launch shuts down. He can't even launch the missiles if he tried. It just, the whole system shuts off. And he's like, I can't, I have no power. I can't shoot my missiles. And so he flies out and he tries to fly back around and he gets the power back. And so he gets the the missiles launched up again and he comes back around. And as he gets close enough for shooting range, it goes out again. He has no power. He can't shoot the missiles. And he's like, why was he trying to shoot this thing? Was he directed? Because, yeah, his base told him they were like, shoot it down. We can't have any, anything, um, you know, interrogating our base. So we can't have moon, moon creators. Yeah, just Diamond in case. moon, moon machines. <laughs> Diamond moon machine? Shoot it down. <laughs> so uh, he tried, and he tried several times, and he couldn't get it. He couldn't shoot at it. Once he got in shooting range, it was the missiles went out of range, and he couldn't shoot. So this has, again, attributed to what we call the electromagnetic field, that something is affecting technical controls when you're in a certain range, right? Right. So that's it for that story. There's nothing else about that. I I don't know if it disappeared or anything. They were just, this part of the chapter was just referring to like whether or not we have shot at UFOs, which. I wonder if, imagine if it was like an old school like catapult and there was no electricity involved. Like how would it stop that? Would it just like disintegrate it? Would it stop midair and like. Right. You know, like, would it? Well, would that's it actually turn funny your, that you say that. Rock into like candies, pop rocks. Like, what would happen? Yeah, it's funny that you asked that because the next story, the one that takes place in in Peru, um, the pilot actually gets some some bullets shot at the aircraft, and I'll I'll tell you what happens. So this happened in Peru. This this is a really funny story to read because the pilot is like telling it, and he is like such a cocky guy. He's like, yeah, I won like, I won a bunch of awards for being like this great pilot at age 19. And like, I've been in the war since I was 
came out of the womb. So, like, I know a lot about flying planes. Like, whatever. Yeah, he just, like, is was bragging of, about how talented he was at flying his aircraft. Is he one of the dudes in the book where there's, like, a photograph of him next to, like, no. weapons and stuff? There was no, no, there was no picture. Uh, but I, I do, I, I could imagine that. That, that, that would be easy. I want to get a picture. picture of this guy from my wall. <laughs> yes. His so name his was name? Oscar Santa Maria Huertas. Cool. Yeah. He worked for the Peruvian Air Force um, for plenty, plenty of years. But this happened when he was a young, cocky kid. Uh, So this happened April 11th, 1980 at 7 a.m. in the morning. His commanding officer came to him. He was like, look, Oscar, we have this unidentified object floating around our base. We think it's a spy device. I need you to fly up there and shoot it because it keeps moving around really fast and we need someone to shoot it down and get rid of it because we can't it's have any driving spies on our base. us crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We can't and concentrate. He he's like, I, I know my officer came to me because like I'm the best pilot there is. So like I could fly around at really tight speeds and like shoot this spy device down. So he, I'm like he the goes Tom up, Cruise of Peruvian Air Force Basically, dudes. basically. Yeah, so he goes up into his aircraft and he reports that the, the aircraft looks like a light bulb on the top half. And, it, and then in the bottom is like a flat metal bottom. So it's kind of like a little um, rounded disc. It's round on the top and flat on the it's bottom. Like a flying, it's like a flying nipple, basically. <laughs> Sure. A light bulb nipple. You got like it. Like a radiant, radiant nipple. A radiant so, nipple. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of like a buzzer, like like um, you know, when people like hit the buzzer to answer the question. That's what it made me think of, because it's usually lit up and it's interesting. We have cigar shaped, we have flying uh buzzer nipple. I mean, we have different we have different shapes that are out there. The pokeball, the pokeball. Yeah. Very different shapes out there. So it's right. very cool to describe it. So he, so, so I'm sorry. So, so Oscar, what? He fires on it? So Oscar, yeah, he shoots at it. And he shoots with a, a cone-shaped area of bullets, right? So it's, it's directive, but it also spreads out into a cone shape. Um, and some of them were deviated off the, off the object. But the rest, he described as being absorbed. How wow. interesting is that? So absorbed. Yeah. Some of the bullets were deviated off the object. Like they just ricocheted off. And then the other ones that hit dead on seemed to be absorbed. He said that was the only time he could actually get uh, bullets close to the mechanism. Cause after, after it became aware that it was being shot at, and he did say that it became aware it ascended vertically after the next time he tried to shoot at it. And he said that he would like um, fly these ellipticals around to get back up to the height and he would try to shoot at it again and it would just ascend vertically again. He said this thing got to like way above the clouds. It started almost getting to the top of the atmosphere. And every time it would just hover there. And every time he would he would fly up around kind of in like, you know, a spiraling sense, spiraling up, he would get up to the level, get ready to shoot at it and it would just ascend vertically again. And wow. eventually it got too high. He couldn't fly any high, higher. Um, he did say that he flew close by it at one point without shooting at it because he wanted to get a better look at it. And he noticed that there was laser beam technology on the aircraft. Who knows if that's true or not? But what he does did that say mean? that. So that he saw that the that the vehicle that he was looking at, the little light bulb buzzer nipple, 
had some sort of laser beam technology on it. Like, you know, like when, when you see airplanes that have um, guns with the scopes on them and you can see the scopes, it had some sort of scope like that on it that uh, that looked like laser beam technology. That's all he said. <laughs> That's so cool. Wow. Yeah, very interesting, right? But it never shot at him. Neither of these two cases in Iran oh. or Peru either retaliated. They just basically deflected anything that was coming toward them. So, well, I mean, that's the opposite of when they captured that poor pilot. I mean, this exactly to me, this to me is a reflection of of civility and and of mm-hmm. of grace. You know, to have superior right. technology to be fired at and to just hold your ground and to not not retaliate. I mean, that that to me shows an elegance. You know, yeah. um, right. That, that unfortunately we're not sharing, you know? So who knows if we are attributing these to other planetary devices, then maybe these are two different races of alien species. And it's one might- It's very possible. I yeah, love that. One- That's very possible. <laughs> right. So Oscar, um, he had to return home. He couldn't fly any higher and his like low gas light came on. He said he followed the thing for like almost an hour. <laughs> and then like, his- Sorry, yeah, dude. Like, Ding, ding. Your gas is low. So he had to fly back to base and he had to tell everyone, bro, I didn't shoot the vessel down. It just kept ascending. It absorbed my bullets. It had laser beam technology. I, w- I didn't feel safe. I had to get out of there and my gas was low. So, yeah, we don't even know if that if that vehicle ever like when it left or how it left uh, the atmosphere, if it did, because um, he ended up leaving. He had to fly back to base. So. Kind of interesting, but those are those are the two uh, main cases about whether we have used our technology to try to bring down this unidentified technology unsuccessfully, but also without retaliation. So very interesting, both cases. So I have two more headlines to hit, and then we are finished for today. Um, one being the F- FBI denials in the 1950s. And uh, then following up with why the U.S. has such a bad rep with UFOs. This is where um, the book starts getting interesting to me, Ellie. So I'm, I'm really, really curious to see. I feel like these stories have been fantastic so far, oh. honestly. I mean, they, they are. They're, it's definitely a very, it's a good, it's a good read, guys. I'm but telling we, you, it's a good but read. But it's true because we, we, we go from laying out the sort of the challenges and the definitions. We, then, we, then we silently hover over to uh, like sort of like, how this is breaching aerial safety. Then we're looking at, okay, what, are this, what does this look like when our military is confronting it? Where, do, where could the book go next, I wonder? Right. So I, that's why I'm curious to see what, um, what the rest of the book is like when you do your podcast next time, because it just started getting so juicy. And I think the reason that I really attributed to these last couple chapters was because I feel like they could directly affect me more because I am someone who ha- was born in the United States and grew up in the United States and always, I think like you, was like curious and open, uh, you know, uh, as a skeptic about what this could mean. But it was never confirmed and it always like like we were talking about always seemed to be like in those fake news articles and magazines where it's just like oh this is just garbage journalism nobody yeah, wants we're to not read we're this. not treating it with with the respect and the and the open-mindedness that we need to i mean often right. one of the things that i that i learned uh, just a quick thing that john keel discusses is the tactic of newspapers and government this is what they do if they report on it, 
they'll report on it and treat it seriously on one side, but then they'll offer a completely ridiculous or they'll, they'll just completely ridicule it on the other side. So people are left with both, both right. feelings. And that cancels itself out because what can you do? You're saying, oh, there's a, there's a flying saucer at O'Hare, but then, oh, it's just a silly donut hole, hole whatever. Yeah, it's like, you know, so then you're kind of left with that feeling of like, ah, it's just all it is. When you do that, it's it's an interesting psychological effect that that has when you when you present things that way. It's true. That's a really I mean, good point. And I think I, we, you know, our curiosity mainly comes from the media and how it's portrayed. And like, like you said, we look forward to like movies about otherworldly things and things that we're like, oh yeah, it's not real, but it's fun to watch a movie about. But it's like, but it could be real. Like you can't deny that it's not real just because we have no irrefutable proof. <laughs> it is real. You know, I mean, that's that's the wild thing. But that's also what makes it so uncomfortable is when you're reading about this, when you learn about the wild and beautiful world of, let's say, UFOs, it really makes these movies seem ridiculous because the movies and the entertainment isn't anywhere near how weird this gets. It's really strange. But I think on a subconscious level, that's why we're so attracted to it in our entertainment because part of us wants to interact with this side of the universe anyway part of us believes in it but then what would our entertainment be if this was our reality you know (laughs) i mean planet of the apes (laughs) well like would we just be into like would we just be into like really realistic like funny like suburban 50s style comedies if if reality (laughs) was full of like the weirdest stuff ever rom-coms for life We'd be like, oh my God, give us anything but the dangerous and the and the sci-fi. FBI denials in the 1950s. You ready for this? Oh yeah, perfect. So the feds did not want to admit that UFOs could be other planetary vehicles because they thought that if word got out that they were like, oh yeah, well, they're not from this world. So the only answer is that they're from the other world. In the 1950s, the feds were scared that the Soviet Union would hear about that and they would lead an airstrike on the U.S. disguised as UFOs in a staged wave or a flap, however you want to use the word. <laughs> Isn't that just the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard? That is ridiculous. So, th- so they, <laughs> they're claiming that their reason, and the Cold War did totally affect this, but they're, right. they're claiming that their reason is that other governments would use this to manipulate our population. Yes, that if we if we confirmed that UFOs were real, it would make us look weak and our enemies would dress up as what we're confirming to be real to lead an airstrike on us. Like, does it get more ridiculous than that? <laughs> so it's kind of like on a on a global scale, not wanting to be ridiculed, basically. Not wanting exactly. to seem weak. Because if we exactly. are not the all powerful America or force, then then what it are we? Exactly. It's all to make face at the end of the day, which is very sad. So this is this is the only reason that Project Blue Book started coming into existence existence. And at the time, um, it was called Project Sign, which I don't know if you knew that, but that was something I didn't know about. But that's that's Project um, Sign. Project Sign. The FBI funded this group to debunk 
every sighting that was ever reported, not to verify them, to debunk them, even if they were verifiable. So this was called Project Sign, what, which what is what became Project Blue Book later. But all of this growing public concern was freaking people out. And so the, the FBI was like, we need to hire someone to debunk all of these sightings. They're not real. They can't be real. You know what? It could be the FBI who's behind all those magazines that they put out and put at the bottom of the newsstands that are all the the junk, terrible journalism that we're seeing. Maybe that's written directly by the FBI <laughs> to well, debunk they're 100%, this. They're 100% pushing culture in a direction of fantasy. You know, yep. they're, make, they're making it silly. They're making it fun. They're making it uh, ridiculous. You want to so, know something even more ridiculous? I do. They asked Disney, Walt Disney, they asked him to make informational cartoons showing that UFOs are fake and made up so that they could disperse those out to children and their families and to be like, oh, yeah, psychologically, that's going to make me be like, yeah, it's fake. Why, why are we even pretending that it's real to begin with? They asked Disney to do that. This makes me want to scream, honestly. <laughs> it doesn't make you want to scrout? It makes me want to scrout and not in a <laughs> not in a sexy way. I wish you guys could see David because he literally took his glasses off, closed his eyes, wiped his face, and pushed his hair back and before speaking. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, he's, he's so flustered. And I only react that way when I'm like truly upset about something. Yeah. <laughs> it upsets me deeply because it's like, it's like, look, people, like the government uses, it, like is creating, the government has created a narrative that it wants, that it has spoon fed us. Like it, it's manipulated us, you know? Dude, and how many other us. things do you think they've been doing to us with the same thing, the same manipulation technique? This still goes on today. And all we're talking about is UFOs. Totally. What else could be going on? But talk about fake news. This is like, Fake news created by the government. <laughs> created by them. Yeah. Propaganda, I think, is the term for it, right? Absolutely. Total propaganda. And you know what? You know what the funny thing is? Is is that I think the reason it hurts me so much is because look at how effective it was. Right. How, totally. How crazy is it that we can all be obsessed? I mean, in the 50s, they loved science fiction movies. Right. You know? The Twilight Zone. How crazy is it that we can be both fascinated by it, but at the same time, it's the butt of all jokes for anybody <laughs> to come out about this, you know, yep. to talk about it. I mean, I just saw on Netflix, um, they, they re brought back uh, Unsolved Mysteries. I saw um, that, yeah. Which is, which unfortunately, it's not the same without that dude. Who's, uh, who's who's the face of it? But there was one alien episode, and it made me really sad uh, because the people in that episode were talking about how ridiculed they were as a result of this. I mean, yeah, it's this is it's, all um, part of the plan. It, I do kind of want to see that Disney propaganda, though. I do too. I I actually I tried to look it up. I think that Disney must have turned it down because I I I can't find anything about it ever coming to fruition. But it was definitely something that they asked them to make. Walt, watch Walt. Walt, in his like all-encompassing knowledge of the universe, he probably knew that they were real. So he was like, yeah. "Screw he was this! Like, I'm not going to do that." He's like, "When I was a kid, I was visited by aliens, and then they obviously zapped my brain to turn me into like this <laughs> super genius." So. I mean, is that why the whole conspiracy of like him being like 
frozen in time and it's actually still alive is like exists. I don't know, <laughs> but he we definitely, the if there's some really juicy Walt Disney chaff out there, we got to look into it. Yes, let us know. Let us know your story. Disney knowledge. <laughs> I wonder if there's a good Walt Disney book out there. So uh, the FBI okay. is is the architect of misinformation when it comes to this. Absolutely. Comes to yep. This. And it's because they think what they're doing is keeping us safe by keeping this information from us. But listen to this. I have somebody's name who you can attribute to all of this bull crap that has been just thrown at us since the 50s. His name is Alan Hynek. I don't know if you know anything about him. He was the only scientist hired by the CIA to be put on Project Blue Book specifically to debunk every single report. So he, he's the only scientist that was hired to work for Project Blue Book hired by the CIA to debunk every report that came in. So people at the time were thinking, oh, Project Blue Book, it's a safe space to like report my sightings and like be taken seriously. And, you know, they, they get these reports and they're like, great, thank you for your information. We'll be in touch. Then they hand everything over. They put it on Alan Hynek's desk and he's just like, oh, this is a this is a sun dog. This is a hole punch cloud. You know, he's just going down the list and explaining all these phenomena, even though he has no functional back research for any of this, for any of the answers that he's coming up with. I wonder how much, like how much does it cost for you to completely give up on your like scientific moral code? You know, how much, how much did they pay him? I wonder like, and, and was, I wonder if we could find out at the end, like, was it, is it, was it worth you lying to the world? Like in order to be paid this money? I bet I bet what you're calling a lie is something he didn't even think he was doing because from what I read he seemed like a guy who was happy to debunk all of them he, because he didn't believe it either. He wasn't even a skeptic. He was just a non-believer. So he's the opposite of what we've defined as a true skeptic. And right. honestly, but look, a scientist that doesn't treat things scientifically, a scientist that gets paid to to create Propaganda is a not a scientist. You're, it's a, you're, it's a, you're right. It's a biotist. It's a biasedist. <laughs> okay. Biasedist. It's, it's a you know it's a bullshit artist in a white coat. It's somebody right. using their education and their accolades to deceive. Oh, look, I don't begrudge people a tasty paycheck because at the end of the day, you know, on an individual level. You can't deny that as human beings, we want to provide for our family and have a good life and, and do nice things. And we, you know, unfortunately, scientists are not the highest paid human beings on the planet. So I'm sure if some of them get the chance to to live a higher, you know, if they get a if they get a higher hired by the government. One, yeah. I mean, I mean I, that automatically has like positive connotations to it. You're like, oh, I work for the government. How fancy. Yeah. I don't care what I have to do. He must have felt like Jason Bourne, you know, like totally, <laughs> totally debunking this stuff. But ultimately, you know, it's history that will decide whether or not you led a credible life and led us as a species in a noble and honorable direction, you know? Because yep. I think at the end, at the end, he, he did claim that he did reverse his little tune, didn't he? Alan Hynek? Yeah. Uh, I didn't. I didn't read that far into it. I guess because it never said anything about. I mean, well, yeah, we'll, Leslie never said anything. We'll about look into him that, that for next time. Yeah, because okay. it might be in might be in my half of the book. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. 
So they take so, a scientist and they they have him. They, it's like a stamp of credibility to the pile of bullshit, basically. Right. Right. Exactly. And was His he the one who created Blue Book? He didn't create it. No, he was hired. by FBI created Blue Book, but he was the, he was the only scientist hired to work for Project Blue Book. I thought Blue Book was like the definitive. Like, oh, this proves that they're real. Meanwhile, Blue Book is the opposite right, that of that. Was, it's the exactly, And that's what they told the public. They told the public that Project Blue Book was the safe space to submit your, your sightings and that we would take it seriously. And then, yeah, right. they were like literally hired to debunk everything. So it's the complete opposite of what you thought they were. They started in 1952. They were originally called Project Sign in 1947 and were renamed Project Blue Book in 1952. So Alan Hynek, his most noteworthy claim um, was what we call swamp gas. Do you know this story, David? Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hynek. <laughs> yes, he's he swamp gas, which he is also full of. Don't you um, have this to? Happened... Yes. So, oh. <laughs> Don't you need a swamp to have swamp gas? Um, yes, and this did happen over a swampy area. So in 1966, over Dexter and Hillsdale, Michigan, there were hundreds of people who witnessed these glowing lights over a swampy area of Michigan. They all reported it to Project Blue Book. It became national news, and the FBI was like, Hynek, you got to deal with this. And Hynek was like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll just say, you know, it's swamp gas. <laughs> That's what you're seeing. <laughs> It just seems lazy. Like, couldn't you have come up with a better explanation? I mean, I don't even know exactly. what swamp gas is. Yeah, so listen to this. So this is um, this is from Alan Hynek's uh, reporting. Hynek was called, uh, called to a packed press conference, one bordering on hysteria, as he described it, where he made the comment that the lights could have been the glow of something called marsh gas, a rare phenomenon that arises from the spontaneous ignition of decaying vegetation. <laughs> so his explanation for this, totally made up, by the way. This is not a thing. It's not a thing. He was just like, I'm going to make it a thing. It is now what we call swamp gas. And people rioted. It was met with huge ridicule. Ridicule. Everyone was like, you're full of crap. And now we know you are because that's bull crap. We saw these spotlights over a swamp. And you're like, oh, it's just swamp gas. Because I'm Helen oh, Hynek. So, it, and that's so it, ba- it backfired in a way. It backfired, which is cool. Um, but yeah, the... He said he faced tons of hostility in the press and among the public for his swamp gas explanation that was widespread and the media ridiculed <laughs> ridiculed him and now he's legendary for that term. <laughs> Amazing. So he's, basically he's the, people he's the were like granddaddy of swamp gas. Yeah, y'all went too far with the swamp gas. You crossed an unacceptable line in all your debunking madness and now we're on to you. <laughs> So um, here's another man that you're going to hate. His name is Edward Condon. I don't know if you know anything about the Condon Report, um, but that was a government-paid study that uh, they hired Edward Condon to create. He was in charge of it. He got to hire his own members. He even admitted on the record that he would only hire non-believers to be on the committee of this report. So this was in addition to Project Blue Book and their like big ridicule that was happening. So their their ratings were going down. Like everyone was like, oh, screw Project Blue Book. So the, the government's like, think quick. Let's create a different report. We'll, we'll do a, a, a concentrated study and it'll come out with this report that will be the be all and end all for UFO sightings. And this is what you're going to refer to for the rest of your days. 
And wait, what was this project called? It was the Condon Report. Oh my lord. Edward okay. Condon, yep. So Edward, he had, again, he admitted he would only hire non-believers on his committee. He wow. is quoted for saying, UFOs do not exist until I have irrefutable proof. So that was like his hard line and like would not cross it at all. He said, um, he also was quoted saying, the government should have never gotten involved in this nonsense to begin with. This is not a government matter. 20 years have gone by and we know no more than we did 20 years ago. <laughs> Just like a jerk I mean of a man, right? The biggest jerk you can honestly, imagine. Honestly, like as human beings, we're like, we're just getting over segregation and everything at that point oh anyway. God. So we're right. not exactly exceeding with flying colors in the, in the humanity, uh, you know, realm, in the civility. Right. And so he admitted afterwards that he had only hired people that did not believe. Yes, correct. Listen to this. Here's how, here's how much of an idiot he is. By the time the report came out, he didn't even read it because he prefaced the whole report when they had the committee meeting. He's like, guys, we put out this report like UFOs are not real till we have irrefutable proof. The government should have never gotten involved. 20 years have gone by. We know no more now than we did then. This whole study was a worthless waste of time, right? So that's what he prefaces it as. He didn't even read the final report because people who actually read it and were going to ask him questions about it were like, well, that's weird that that's your opinion on it because if you would have read your own report that you hired all your non-believers to write for you, it actually gives really good arguments for the existence of UFOs. So by hiring these non-believers to do this experiment, they changed their own minds and wrote this final report saying, you know what, there is a good argument for the existence of UFOs. They might exist. He didn't even read the freaking report. He was just like, sticking with my word like I did three years ago when he hired me. So he's the leading cause to the end of Project Blue Book, anything government funded for all of this UFO sightings. The government is out after this happens. Well, thank you so much, sir, for your contribution <laughs> to the buffoonery of our great subject here. But <laughs> once again, we're not asking people whether or not aliens from another planet are here. We are just saying that there are things that cannot be explained, that are intelligent, that are not ours. They're not right. our technology moving right. around. And we don't have an basis. answer for them, and we don't need an answer for them yet. We're still we working on that. Answer, I mean, we could live a billion years and not understand what these things exactly. are. But doesn't mean that we can't begin to... This is what they're giving us on the surface. We don't right. know what kind of research projects are going on underneath all of this. Right, Just exactly. because the government is claiming that it thinks this is bullshit does not mean that they're not taking it seriously because obviously this poses a threat at a level that's, you know, very, very great. I mean, right. forget the Cold War. We're dealing with an <laughs> entirely separate uh, entity in the sky, an entity right. that could pose risks during Cold Wars and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. So um, because of all this that happened with the Condon Report and the ending of Project Blue Book, there, there's now a fact sheet that uh, the military, the Air Force, that they give out to all of their pilots that report sightings. They just give them a fact sheet. 
They don't even accept their reporting necessarily. And <laughs> do you want to know what's on this fact sheet? Yeah, I do. By the way, this is uh, this is forty years later. This is still happening today. They're still giving out the same fact sheet that they create that the FBI started handing out after Project Blue Book shut down shut down their operations. Three things on this fact sheet: one, UFOs are no threat to national security, just like stating it as a fact. And while this may be true so far. There's no way to prove that, right? We have no way to guarantee that UFOs are no threat to national security. They're just stating, like, why report it? They're not a threat. Stop reporting your UFOs, right? So that's number one. Number two, there's no proof of their technology, of, of the technology of UFOs being been beyond our own knowledge. So in a funny way, they're actually denying their first claim, which says that UFOs are no threat by saying that like they don't have technology beyond our own. We have that technology too, which we've already told you in plenty of the other stories that that's just absolutely not true. These things can move at a rate, at a speed that humans haven't even been able to fathom happening yet. They move at a velocity and uh, distance and directions that, directions that, that and shouldn't be able to happen. Like you were saying at the beginning, they hum. They, they, they make a tiny hum or no sound at all. How is that possible for a propulsion uh, piece of equipment that, that should be making noise, but based off of having a motor or something like, like what we yeah, have? Yeah, we don't so. have this. We don't have this silent like instant teleportation technology. Exactly, you know? which is, yeah, that's basically what it is. Exactly. And then the third thing on the fact sheet, um, there's no proof of extraterrestrials. Now, how does reporting a UFO mean that I'm trying to prove that ETs exist? Like that fact has nothing to do with the fact that I'm reporting this UFO as a, as a military officer. I'm doing it for my own safety. Going back to Richard Haynes, talking about aviation safety, you know, maybe the, the object b- almost hit me. But like you, by you giving me this fact sheet is basically denying that I saw it and denying my safety out in the air. Why would I want to continue working for a force base that doesn't, that's just going to hand me a fact sheet when I try to tell them that I didn't feel safe in this instance and this is why? Is that just well, awful? It's, it's interesting how they, not only is it important for them to control the narrative in the public's mind, it's important for them to control the narrative in the mind of their own men so that right. these men don't question it so that these men don't come out about it, so that it's not encouraged to talk about or anything. Right. I mean, people in the military who have these sightings, they report them, the reports disappear. You know, there's, yeah. often, there's often stories about other men in black suits that are part of some, some all clearance. They're just able to waltz in and take the reports or take the videos away from everybody. And it's just not, I mean, this is how they've managed to kind of suppress it within their own intelligence communities. Right, um, right. By and that actually their pensions, all of it. Right, exactly, yes. And Leslie said the um, the same thing about you saying, like, the reportings go missing or or they're just wrongly recorded. So, like, you know, those um, that instance in Iran and Peru where the um, where they they shot at the UFO, both of the cases in the U.S. are wrongly dated. The information is askew. It's inaccurate. It's not 
properly recorded according to like where it happened in Iran and where it happened in Peru and their reportings. The way the U.S. reported it is like, eh, it doesn't really matter. It's not real anyway. We don't need to be exact on the way that we're, we're, we're reporting this. So same thing that you're saying. It's just like, they, it just shows how little they care because there's no government funding for this type of thing anymore. It's just like, oh, well then it doesn't exist. If it's not being funded by the government, it just doesn't exist. Well, the Navy, the Navy released a report where they did disclose of another post-post Blue Book operation, but yeah. they showed the funding to be, I forget if it was like a million or a few million, even if it was 10 million, it, it showed just how little funding goes into right. it. So right. it's not really, um, it's not really, oh, that we know of, you know, right. that we know of. And, and maybe that started up again after Leslie wrote this book. Because, again, this book is 10 years dated now. But according to her, she said that the military has stopped doing all investigations. They deny all future reportings. This is in the U.S. Um, that they there's no funding for it whatsoever. So, Well, look, if they have alien technology, they don't want anyone to know about it. It's true. You know? Yeah. If they don't, they certainly don't want other countries to know about it. If they If they know anything... Then it'll only it'll only create more questions. If you say we know there are creatures from this star system, what else do we know about this? You know, right. it, it it creates so many more questions. I you know I really wonder what we do know in in the depths of the government. And does anybody actually know everything, or is it all just so compartmentalized? that there's barely a handful of people who have all the information. I mean, not only does it make it difficult to study if everything's compartmentalized like this, but it I just don't know how how much progress we can make that way with with the information. But I I do really wonder, you know, we all wonder I think how much the government really knows. And it's funny because they always talk about the presidents. The presidents like even Obama acknowledged that he would let us yeah. know if he knew, but the funny thing is, like, a president, they've, you know, I've seen, you know, information that's interesting about that because it's like a president, someone who come and goes. You know, yeah. you can't, they come and they go. They, you can't give them all that information. And, I mean, this is, this is what's, what's operating on a level of what they call the, you know, the secret government, the, uh, the shadow government. But, you know, I really appreciate, for, for us especially, that we don't, we're not really too, too schooled on the, on the, on UFO 101 sort of stories with and and the way the government's handled it. I, I don't you think it's like a pretty incredible read as far as us being brushed up on this stuff? Totally. So up until this year, the US has become an outcast to the rest of the world in their development of these programs and, you know, the the lack of funding and stuff. And and like while while, like you said, like Project Blue Book was re-upped, maybe, and maybe by civilian people or like people who don't work for the government and they got their funding elsewhere, um, it's not credible like it is in other countries where the government does take it seriously and does report sightings and they do pay for you know, they, they fund CNES, uh, which is basically the NASA equivalent uh, in France. And um, under that, they have a, a UAP group called JPAN. I don't know. It's G-E-I-P-A-N. Japan. <laughs> Japan. CNES uh, in Japan. Yeah, right, which is just um, they, they study unidentified a- aerial uh, phenomena. Uh, and 
I don't know what the acronym stands for, but it's something in French that came out of CNES. And it's still one of the best uh, groups today. So like if you see anything in the U.S. and it's huge, maybe you should consider reporting your shit to France because you know the U.S. is not going to take it seriously. <laughs> you heard it from us, for, folks. Report <laughs> your shit to France. Yeah, the the founder of uh, J-Pan, I'll, I'll call it J-Pan, his name is Yves Szilard. He's still working there. Or no, I think he worked there for like 40 years, though. Um, he just recently retired. But he was like really well respected in the European uh, space community. And he helped develop the com- the Cometa report. I'm sorry, Cometa report uh, from 1996 to 1999, the one that um, Leslie King got her hands on. So uh, he was in charge of the in-depth study that turned into JPAN in 1999. And that consisted of the, all the retired officials that wrote essays for this book. So I think that's a kind of cool way to round everything back out for what we talked and, about. And let me, and, and yeah, that is, that's a great way. But let me ask you, like, are French people running in the streets, tearing their hair out <laughs> and claiming they'll never look at croissants the same way again? No. <laughs> You know, they're, exactly. they're never going to smoke a cigar because it terrifies them too much. And I don't even know if they smoke cigars there. Like, you know, like, are, are, <laughs> is this destroying the fabric of society to simply yeah. treat it with respect? No. Like people and, and look, not only to say that, but look at the damage that's been done by the way we've handled this in the 50s that like still people don't believe in any of it or they're, they're not interested so you're going right. to always have people who aren't interested. And so why not just treat it with respect and, and let's let's, you know, and I think honestly, to credit the government, I think the government's beginning to do this, whether it's by their choice or not. I think that they're starting to be like, OK, like we have enough things going on. You mentioned Tom DeLong. I mean, he's starting he started an organization called Academy to the Stars. I mean, you have people, private individuals um, who are creating organizations who are acknowledging this in this country. You have this movement in the right direction. But it's just interesting because if you look at the effect in other countries, just because the military is acknowledging the the reality of it doesn't mean that that's ruining people's right. lives, you know, because a lot of people are just simply not interested in it. And I'm, and I'm fine with that. I mean, there's no reason. I mean, it, it makes you really... It brings brings to light a point which is interesting, which is and, and something she mentions in her book, which is a lot of people are skeptical simply not because they believe or don't believe that it exists, but because they're going to be like on a fundamental level. How does this affect my life? Why does this matter? You know, right. it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect whether or not I'm going to be able to put food on the table. It doesn't <laughs> affect whether or not what I'm doing this weekend. I mean, and you're entitled to feel that way. And I'm fine with people feeling that way because, you know, I, I, I don't want everyone freaking out about this. But at the same time, that should be a good sign. You know, the, France and, and what other countries are doing should be a good sign for ours to be like, you know what? OK, we can shift this now. This ain't 1952. I actually I have one last chapter to cover, but it's real quick. Um, this was another uh, one of the heads of the French UFO agency um, and his story from his time working, I don't want it. There. Listen, I don't. I don't want it necessarily quick. I just want it hard. For <laughs> me. Okay, hard. I'm sorry. Let me give it to you hard. So uh, this ready. is what I. 
what I was talking about um, earlier when people were going out and sampling soil and vegetation and water at landing sites that were happening all over France and the surrounding area in the 80s. Um, and they detected tons of like electromagnetic heat, waves and infrared light, whatever. I, you know, I don't know all the scientific terms, but they but they were detecting tons of the stuff that like military pilots were detecting when they were losing signals from their plane uh, when getting close to these aircraft. So we know that there's a connection there. He also, uh, sorry, this guy's name is Jean-Jacques Velasquez. He made a great connection to sightings happening around the same time as the world was doing nuclear testing and that a lot of sightings were happening at nuclear testing bases. So I just want to leave the our listeners with a, a wow. thought. Like, it's almost as if, you know, we're, we're picturing extraterrestrials, if, if they are coming down in this in this other planetary spacecraft, they're coming to get reports of activity that's happening on Earth, Earth as we know it. And in and around the universe, they're getting these high nuclear radiation signals and maybe just being like, we have to go check this out and see if if it's a threat, if something's going to blow up, if we're going to get like a black hole soon, you know, maybe they know more about the universe than we do. And they're just coming to check it out and monitor what strength the human race has and see if we really are a threat or not. And maybe that's why nothing has ever happened to us because we don't pose a threat to them. But as uh, nuclear testing gets stronger and stronger, maybe that's why these connections with sightings are becoming uh, so relevant as well. It's my it's my deepest hope that they are even the darkest of them have a hand in helping us and preventing us from destroying ourselves. It's my yeah. deepest hope because there's a lot of famous UFO stories about them shutting down tests and disabling missiles. I, it's my deepest hope that they are, please, you know, if I'm speaking to the UFOs directly, like help us <laughs> help ourselves, help us, like stop us from like, you know, when you're like, why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? <laughs> stop us from hitting ourselves. Because you're right, like that is when we became relevant to them. That is when the monkeys, the little anthill, started to become a little bit too much for them to ignore because right. suddenly we, we, we came up with technology that could, I don't know, somehow tear like a fabric in the reality. And, and you know, I don't know, like how deep does the damage go I'm just gonna use the word quantum all the time. How deep does the damage go on a quantum level when you set off an atomic bomb? Like, how can this affect, you know, the universe is connected, but I'm curious, how does it affect alien races? Or if they're extra dimensional and they live on this planet and this is their home and it's been their home as long as it's been ours, they don't want this to happen to the earth. You know, they, they can't have that. As much damage as we've caused, the earth is still here, but it's curious, and it, in my mind, it's just part of the story. It's a fact that that's when they became seriously involved with us in modern times. Well, I'm excited to see where else this book takes us. Yeah, me too. That's why, that's why I said, like, I stopped right at the juicy parts where it was like, ooh, who knows where this is going to lead, how it's going to end. So I look forward to next week. <laughs> well, I appreciate someone dedicating 10 years of their life to researching this. You know, it's it's a it's a real privilege to have Leslie's work and mind uh, help you know help lay the groundwork for us as researchers ourselves and you know for our listeners we you know we highly encourage you picking up this book and uh, reading along with us. 
Um, so yeah, so next week we are going to wrap up UFOs. Generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record by Leslie Keane. And we'll see where things take us from there. That's it for today's feast. Thank you for dining with us. Hold your cosmic appetites for next time. And reach out to us on Twitter and follow us on Instagram at Cosmic Feast. 